We have this week a story where the scribes and Pharisees try to trap Jesus by forcing him to make a judgment that he doesn't want to make. Okay? And so that's, that's probably, this, this passage is probably the strangest of the three passages on judgment. So we'll be building on some of the things we learned in the past weeks. If you weren't here, that's fine, but um, I'm not going to try to repeat all of the things that we've learned about judgment. So if you have questions or something seems odd to you, feel free to ask me questions afterwards. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When you get to the end of this text, it's easy to forget what you read at the very beginning because it's such, it's such an intense thing with Jesus saying, I do not condemn you, and it seems so odd to us, or maybe it doesn't seem odd to you. Maybe you think that there is no judgment at all. But regardless, we have to remember that watching this entire thing transpire is an entire crowd of Jews. Okay? So when it says that Jesus was left, that he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court, it's saying that they were standing in the center alone, and all the Pharisees and the scribes were gone who had brought her into the center, but still there watching everything going on is that entire crowd that we saw in verse 2, all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So this is in the midst of a whole group of people, Jews in Jerusalem, on the last day of the feast. Now, if you were there, if you were one of those people, I guarantee that you would think about this for a long time after the fact. It's a dramatic episode. You know, you don't, um, when, when you see something dramatic happen, like a car crash, you, you, don't, you don't just forget it immediately, right? One time we were in a car accident when Tate was like three or something like that, and he just talked and talked about that. It's, you know, the, and he, was, he would repeat some of the things that we had said to describe what happened. And... Do you remember that, Tate? Not anymore. The, the car accident we saw? Somebody ran a red light 45 miles an hour, and the person who had the green light turning left got the front of their car just obliterated. And so it, it's dramatic, right? And, and you relive it. You relive it especially right after the fact. And everybody who watched this happen, I guarantee you they were reliving it afterwards. 
Because what this is, is this is a matter of life and death. The question on the floor in the middle of the, you know, the circle of all the people. You, it's not like here where everyone's sitting in nice rows, right? In the center of the court, you're going to have people circling around so they can hear. And, and it's just going to be a press of people, a big crowd. And, and standing there in the center, you've got life and death playing out in front of your eyes. Is this woman going to be stoned to death by us, our people, or not? That's the question that everybody has at the forefront of their minds as the Pharisees and the scribes come and place this question before Jesus. It's not theoretical to anybody there. And you'd think about it afterwards. You'd think about the woman. You'd think about what she did and what she said and what those things meant. You'd think about the scribes and the Pharisees, how they responded to Jesus, why they brought her in the first place. You'd think about Jesus and, and you'd, you'd ask yourself why he did what he did. And you'd think about the outcome at the end with him and her standing there in the center. And it's a dramatic event. At the end, he, he's saying, is nobody accusing you? Is nobody condemning you? And then he says, neither do I condemn you. And as you thought about these things, if you were given any wisdom from the Spirit, you would learn from each of them. You'd learn from having heard. You'd learn from having seen, from having watched each of these people. So imagine with me that we are the Jews in the crowd and learn as we study each of these people. We'll look at the scribes and the Pharisees first. There's so much to learn. We could, we could, give a, you know, we could have a sermon on the scribes and the Pharisees in this situation. We could have a sermon on the woman and a sermon on Jesus, but instead I'm just going to go for four hours this morning. Now we'll try to make it through. Think about the scribes and the Pharisees. What are they doing? What are they attempting to do? If you were a Jew there and you watched the scribes and the Pharisees, you know that these are your religious leaders, okay? They're your religious leaders. These are not people that you have uh, some sort of, um, you know, that, that you just sort of have to put up with. Maybe like the Republican Party, you sort of put up with them, right? No, these are the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the people who took the law seriously, who really believed in the religion. These are not the Sadducees. The Sadducees were like the, the crazy liberals who were like, oh yeah, we worship God. He, she, it is a wonderful, beautiful force thingy. Okay, that's sort of like the Sadducees. You've got crazy people like that today who claim to be religious but have denied the power of, of religion, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, on the other hand, were people who actually believed in God, believed in the resurrection, believed in angels and demons. These were people who believed in obedience to God's commands, who believed that the word of God in its entirety was breathed out by him. So these are your religious leaders. And they come and they bring this woman up in front of everybody. And what are they trying to do? Well, they're attempting to trap Jesus. They're attempting to trap Jesus. This is something they had tried to do before. So some of the Jews undoubtedly were from out in the provinces or from various places and hadn't had a lot of interaction, hadn't seen a lot of the interactions between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus. But some of them certainly had seen this before. These kinds of attempts that the scribes and Pharisees were making or that the Sadducees would come and try to make to discredit Jesus. 
and it begins to be clear to you what's going on. These are the sorts of things that be, become more obvious the more times that they're tried. You try to discredit somebody, and then you try another way to discredit them, and you try another way to discredit them, and pretty soon, you know, everyone gets the picture of what you're doing. There was no secret leading up to this point that the scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus. So everybody in the crowd sees what they're doing. They know that there's some sort of trap that's being laid, that's being set, right? They can see that they're like working behind the curtain, like on something, and then you know, you see them sweeping their tracks. And, and you don't, you, a lot of the people there probably didn't have any idea exactly what the trap was, but they could, they could feel the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. Are you, you tracking with me? They would, they would not know exactly what the problem was. They would feel like it was an unfair question, though. They would, they would be, some of them, wanting to see Jesus discredited and some of them wanting to see how he would answer and some of them just wanting the scribes and the Pharisees to go away because it was too tense for them. Is this woman going to live or is she going to die? And some of them just wishing that Jesus would go back to teaching because that's their last day of the feast, the last time they have a chance to hear him before they've got to head back out of the city. And here the scribes and the Pharisees are ruining it for everybody. So this is, the, this is the setup. The scribes and the Pharisees enter in, and th what have they done? Well, they have brought this woman, and they are using her. They are using her in their attempt to get at Jesus. In this, in this sense, she is an innocent victim. Okay? And this isn't to say that she is innocent in her life. She is an adulteress, not at all innocent. But in this sense, she is being manipulated and used in, in her innocence as a victim to try to get at somebody else. She is an easy person to abuse in this way. And the reason she's innocent I mean, the reason she's easy to abuse in this way is because she isn't totally innocent, right? Because of her sin, she has been left in a place where she is open to being taken advantage of. Do you guys understand how that works? This is the kind of thing that... Um, happens in college a lot when, uh, when people get drunk. That getting drunk is an initial sin, and then what happens is that they are open to all sorts of victimization. All right? So when you read about, when you read about these cases where young women have been raped, and the one of the primary points in the story is that she had been drinking and that she was not entirely conscious. Okay? Now you're, now you're seeing the same kind of situation that is happening here. This woman has fallen into sin and that has allowed the Pharisees to make use of her. We're not entirely sure whether she was married or not, but you can imagine she's lost the protection of her husband through her sin, right? And so our sin, in this case her sin, has let her, left her open to this kind of sin on the part of somebody else against her. But it's not just a sin against her, it's, it's a sin of, uh, against her for the sake of getting at Jesus. And so now if you think about um, if you think about oh, 
if you think about blackmail, often blackmail comes about as a result of the sin of the person, and the threat is, I will reveal the sin, right? Think about uh, Dennis Hastert, right? His sin, and so for, for years in abusing children, was covered up, and then he wanted it to stay covered up, and so some of those people were blackmailing him, or at least pressuring him for some sort of compensation. Okay, so he had been opened up again to being used. But there's another way that, uh, that threats like this take place, and, and it's less common, but it does happen, and, you, and you're probably more familiar with it in movies, where the family of the person that you're angry at is who you go after. You see this kind of thing that, you know, the daughter of the political, of the powerful politician is kidnapped by the, by the bad guy, right? And so then she's being sinned against, but she's being sinned against in order to get at somebody else who loves her. Jesus, in this case. And that is an appropriate way of understanding what's going on here. What is the trap that, these, that the scribes and Pharisees are laying? The trap that they are laying is, on the one hand, they're trying to get him to make a judgment, right? And what are the two choices that they lay before him? It ends up being a false choice, right? He picks something else. But the two choices that they lay before him are essentially kill her, show no love, for the woman in sin, that's, their, that's the option on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the other option is what? Dismiss God's law. Show yourself no lover of God and his law. Because it is entirely true that Moses commands that she be stoned, right? Right? Well, it's almost entirely true. There are circumstances. There are, there are some times where the command is that she's to be stoned. But it's not just that she's to be stoned. In those cases, both the man and the woman are to be stoned. But regardless, the scribes and the Pharisees are willing to twist those little things to try to place this false choice between Jesus. And what they're trying to do, again, is to discredit him. They're trying to leave him open to attack. They hate the fact that all of the Jews that are gathered around are listening to him. They're jealous of his, uh, of his teaching. They're jealous of the people following him. They hate him. And if they can just discredit him in the eyes of this whole crowd... Then the crowd will stop listening to him, and things will go back to way they, the way they were before, when they all listened to them. And so they're willing for there to be any number of victims in their quest to get back their own influence and power. This... This relationship between the scribes and the Pharisees and then Jesus and then the woman is that the woman has been placed in between, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees are doing their best to drive a Mack truck at Jesus and to kill him. And they're basically, they're, they're basically saying, you know what, we'll sacrifice her in our goal to get him to dive in front of the truck and he'll get squashed because if he saves her, then that means that he's rejected God's law and all the people will see that he doesn't actually care about God's law. We've been trying to get them to see that he hates God's law. He, he doesn't obey the Sabbath like he's supposed to. He doesn't, 
he, he hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Clearly, this man doesn't actually love the law of God. But nobody seems to see it except for us. So if we can just get them to see it. But of course, the reason nobody saw it except for them is because it wasn't true. Jesus loved the law far more than they ever could imagine. And this is why ultimately their trap doesn't work. Their trap is based on the assumption that they know the law better, that they love the law better, that they love God more than Jesus does. And that is a deadly assumption. Because what happens? What happens is Jesus raises up the law in response to their trap. He raises up the law far higher than they had ever raised it. And he saves the woman. And what happens to the scribes and the Pharisees? They're shamed. They're shamed. What does he say to them? He says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they went out, starting with the older ones. Until what? Until none of them were left. Why? Why were none of them left? Well, because every last one of them was put to shame by Jesus' simple, indirect confrontation with them in response. They think they've got him. When they first ask the question, what should we do? Should we stone her? And he goes down to writing in the dirt. Can't you just feel yourself? If you're one of them, you'd, you'd feel, you'd, you'd, you could taste the blood. You've, you, you've got the scent. You're like, aha, finally a question that he can't answer. We have got him for sure this time. Have you ever felt that, that sense of, vin, you know, that vindictive, like, oh, we're so going to get him. Oh, this is going to be good. Have you ever felt that before? Or am I the only one here who's ever felt that way? I've felt that way. You can feel, you can imagine them feeling that way. They're like, they're rubbing their hands together in glee. They're, Come on, Jesus, tell us, should we stone her or not? And finally, he answers, of course, not with yes or no, but with he who is without sin among you. Let him be the first to cast the stone. And their consciences are bad, aren't they? And they're bad for so many reasons. I just got done explaining to you how wicked it was what they were doing. How sinful they were being to this woman, in spite of her sin. How sinful they were being towards Jesus. How their own desire, sinful desires were what motivated their entire course of action over this day. And the day was young. He, you know, they'd just gotten to the temple in the morning and Jesus has just begun teaching to the crowds. And this is what happens. And one by one, their consciences get to them because of Jesus' simple statement. You who are without sin, cast the first stone. Now, 
I want you to picture for a second. Uh, I want you to picture. Uh, what, what example should I? Okay, here, here's an example from yesterday. Um, I was, I was sitting somewhere listening, uh, to a conversation. Between, um, a mother and her daughter, I think explaining that you need to, this is, this is part of friendship, that you need to, if you're going to be friends, you have to forgive each other, right? This sort of thing is something you, you may hear anywhere. Um, and you know what's happened, right? These, these two girls that are sitting there have been bickering about something, and, and they're angry at each other, and the mom is trying to patch things up. Are you, are you tracking with me? And so she's exhorting uh, her daughter to, to be willing to forgive. Well, the daughter's response, as soon as her mom starts talking about what friendship is and, and, obedience, er, and, and forgiveness, the daughter's response is, uh-huh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, mom. That's that's the you know you can shut up now. You're embarrassing me, right? But it was just uh -huh, yeah. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. That was all she said, until her mom shut up and stopped embarrassing her. There's two ways of responding when your conscience assails you. And the Pharisees and the scribes respond with that sort of response. Uh -huh, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, and then they leave. Now, they don't say anything, but, but they're leaving one by one is them leaving in their shame. It is them hiding their sin. They haven't changed. They don't have a desire now for Jesus to be Lord of their lives, right? What's going on is simply that they don't want their sin exposed, and so they're going to leave before Jesus starts telling people, what about you? Remember what he did with the woman at the well, right? You're right. You're not married. In fact, you've been married five, you've had six men, and the one you're with now, you aren't married to. This is the kind of thing that Jesus could do to anybody. And the scribes and the Pharisees are not idiots. They know that Jesus performs miracles. There's no doubt about that. Remember, all of John is about believing in the right way. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that Jesus had power. They believed that he performed miracles. They saw it all. And yet, what? Yet they did not believe to salvation. And so here they, here they are again. And they walk away. They continue to try to hide their sin. There is, Matthew Henry says, there is no way to get the honor and comfort of penitence. What's a penitent? Who? Who is a penitent? A penitent is somebody who's repentant. So when you repent of your sin, what he's saying is there's no way to get the honor and comfort that comes from repenting, all right? But by taking the shame of repenting, or how he puts it, but by taking the shame of penitence. 
So if you want to receive the benefit that comes to people who are repentant, the only way that you can receive that, uh, that, that good thing that comes, and the good thing is honor and comfort, the only way you receive those is by actually repenting, which of course is shameful, isn't it? Because it shows everybody what you are, what your sin is. So what should the scribes and the Pharisees have done? Well, did they get anything right? It doesn't appear that they got anything right here. From beginning to end, all of their actions are driven by their own sinful desires, not by any love for the law of God. And so as they walk away, their consciences have afflicted them, but rather than confess their sins, rather than repent and sit under the teaching of Jesus and receive the salvation that comes from believing in his name, they walk away. They are unwilling to have their own sin exposed through repentance. We must not be the scribes and the Pharisees. We must be willing when our conscience afflicts us, when people point out our sin, when we're called to repentance. We must repent of our sin not run away in order to avoid the embarrassment. Not say, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yes, we know you know, but you're not doing it. That's why we're telling you again. It's that simple, right? I know you know. Why do I keep telling you? Well, because... I know that you're like me and you're not doing it. Think about the woman. Totally different response, isn't it? She has a totally different response from the scribes and Pharisees. She has the benefit that her sin is already out in the open. It's shameful, but it is the benefit that she has. You see her there, you're in the crowd, you see her there, you know she's been caught in adultery, or at least, you know, she's not denying it. Think about the shame that she had. Think about the fear. Remember, the question is her life or her death. Her sin has been found out. It's what's led her into this situation where her life is on the line. And yet it's often one of the most gracious things that God does for us in letting our sin be found out. One of the most gracious things that he does is when we can't bring ourselves to repent because of the fear that other people will find out. He says, well, let's not worry about that last part. Here, everybody's found out. Now repent. Are you afraid of that happening? Are you afraid of people knowing what your sin actually is? Of course you are. We all are. But here's the thing. We all are. <laughs> You're not unique in being a sinner. 
That's the lie that Satan wants you to believe, that you're the only one who struggles with the sin like that, that bad. And we all struggle with sins. We all are ashamed of the sin that we've given ourselves to. We're all afraid of what other people would think about us if they found out. But who cares what other people think about you? What matters is the judgment of God. Repent now. Endure the shame that Jesus endured so that your soul may be saved. Imagine being used by the religious leaders like this woman was. Yeah, you know your own sin got you into the situation in the first place, but how disgusting those religious leaders are. And what temptation do you think she would face at that point, knowing what these men had, had done to her? To not trust Jesus. Another man, another religious leader. And yet, how does she respond? As her accusers, one by one, disappear. There's no one left keeping her there. No accuser, no prosecutor. And you know what she would have done if she had been like that girl I heard yesterday? I know, I know, I know. She would have been out of there the moment she could have. Right? Are you going to stick around there in front of everybody, everybody staring at you? So this is the adulteress. Hmm. She stayed. Why did she stay? She stayed because she put the question to Jesus by staying in a totally different way than the scribes and the Pharisees put the question to Jesus, what is to be done with her? She stands there alone in the center with Jesus, and the question on her, on her mind is, what is to be done with me? She waits for the judgment of Jesus. She does the opposite of the Pharisees. Her guilt is in the open. And it allows her to wait on Jesus' answer. And so how does Jesus respond? His response is beautiful. It's instructive for us. It's confusing. It's hard to wrap our minds around and figure out what it means for us. Because on the one hand, you've got in our culture today, you know, if... If judge not lest ye be judged is our, is our country's favorite verse, then maybe he who is without sin cast the first stone is their second favorite. And, and so, what? You know, does our culture understand the good news? Does our, does our culture understand grace? Does our culture understand the gospel? Is that why they repeat these verses? Not in the least. Not in the least. And so most of the time when you hear people quoting this, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, what is the goal of the quote? The goal of the quote is to hide sin. The goal of the quote is that sin would not be confronted. The goal of, of saying he who is without sin cast the first stone is what? Quit calling us to repentance. We hate repentance. That's what is actually being said. Well, that clearly is not what Jesus is saying, right? Jesus is not, is not attacking conviction of sin. He is not attacking repentance. He is not attacking the law of God. 
He is raising up the law of God through his response. And, and today, when we say, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, we are doing our best to tear down the law of God. We're doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus is doing when he says that. Now, why do I say that? How can I, how can I make that claim? We'll go back to the beginning of Jesus' response, okay? What's the first thing that he does? Totally ignores them. He totally ignores them first. He knows that they're just attempting to trap him. And so he simply ignores them. Then when he can't ignore them any longer... What does he do? He points out their guilt to them. He points out their guilt to them. Why? Well, because what he's showing them is that they don't care about God's law. The whole, their whole case, their whole justification for being there is built on that idea that they care more about the law of God than Jesus does. And what he's doing is he's pointing out to them, actually, you don't care about the law of God. And so the only way that this response works is with people who are Pharisees. What do I mean by Pharisees? I don't mean you can't say it today because the Pharisees are all long gone. No, people are still Pharisees today, right? What is a Pharisee? Well, somebody who is a legalist. Somebody who claims to be all about the law of God, but in point of fact, they don't really care about the law of God. All they care about is promoting and protecting their own righteousness in the eyes of men. And so when Jesus does this, what he's doing is he is raising the law up and saying, no, if you're going to be here supposedly building the law, you better be here building the law of God. You can't be here pretending to be building the law of God and using this woman and sacrificing her for the sake of your own appearance. That is totally against the law. So today, when we hear this kind of command, the command being, shut up, you're a sinner too, all right? It ought to make us think, what is our goal? Why are people mad at us? Why are they telling us to shut up? Did I just, you know, am I just being abusive? Yeah, yeah, all these questions ought to enter into your mind. Am I being, ultimately, a Pharisee? There's so much going on here in Jesus' response. There's so much about the situation. You know, one of the things that you have to realize is that Jesus is, uh, Jesus is the ultimate judge, right? And so this woman will stand before him and give an accounting for her adultery on the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But Jesus is unwilling to be drawn into civil judgments in his ministry on earth at this time. This is the same thing that he did when, when the man yells out, Teacher, tell my brother to share, his, share the inheritance with me. What does Jesus say? 
He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? What? How can Jesus say he's not a judge or an arbitrator, that he hasn't? Well, because that's not his work in his ministry when he came to earth. He is refusing to be involved in the civil affairs of man. And this ultimately is a question of civil affairs. What ought to be done with regard to the law? And and Jesus is saying he ignores it. Why? Does that matter for us? Well, because we can still face the same temptations of getting distracted by the cares of this world, things that we shouldn't be involved with as Christians. And no, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in politics or that Christians should never be governors or judges or anything like that. Okay? What it does mean is that we cannot confuse the gospel with that work. All right? You cannot confuse the gospel with that work. Now, this is where a lot of Reformed people then take this beautiful shortcut that allows you to shut up entirely and never have to worry about anybody ever being mad at you again. Because they try to make everything into a civil matter. When in point of fact, Jesus' answer doesn't end with, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. His answer ends when he is done speaking to the woman. And when he's done speaking to the woman, what has he said to her? He has said, neither do I condemn you. And he has said, what? Go and sin no more. Her adultery is absolutely Jesus' business. Do you see that? It is absolutely central to his message. It is absolutely central to his work of raising up and fulfilling the law of God and of giving us the message of hope and grace, the gospel. You cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ if the church is unwilling to say, this is sin. Don't do it. There will never be gospel apart from declaration of God's law. So why does he turn to the woman and say, I do not condemn you either? Well, because he loves her, right? I mean, that's simple and true, and yet it's easy for us to mistake it as something that it doesn't mean. Okay? Jesus loves her. Absolutely. But his love for her is not an excusing love. Well, I know you meant well when you slept with him, so that's all that matters. I know you didn't really mean to turn away from God and and turn to this idol of your heart. And so that's really, you know, I love you. It's not a... Um, don't you know I love you? How could you do that terrible thing? I love you. And now there's going to be no consequences. No, Jesus' love for her is a love that comes out of the that comes out of the law 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's him raising up the law and fulfilling it, keeping it perfectly. And so now we've got this we've got this mess in front of us, okay? Then the mess is how do we respond in these different circumstances? You're faced with people who are in uh, who are in various kinds of sin and that you see the sin. Either because they are shameless about it and they're public or because it just came out. And they didn't want it to come out, but it came out. And you hear it in, you know, everywhere you go where did you hear what so and so did? That's sin coming out. Every time you, you hear that question, what follows is their shame. Right? It's the gossip of junior high girls through 90-year-old women. It's the, it's the um, you know, it's, it's in the locker room. It's at the chat circles, it's, it's everywhere you turn, you, what you see, it's on, it's on the headlines of the newspapers, both when there are scandals and when they're trying to promote sin into our culture, all right? And so, when we say, you know, Bruce Jenner really shouldn't pretend to be a woman. And the answer comes back, judge not lest ye be judged, or let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That sets us back on our heels a bit, doesn't it? Because after all, that's what Jesus said when people were trying to talk about this woman who was in adultery. Does it set you back on your heels? Have you ever experienced that? I hope you've experienced it, because if you haven't ever experienced that kind of response, it means that you have never once called somebody to turn away from their sin and to repent. Because if you've done that once, you have heard that response. That is the response you get today. How dare you? You're sinning. You're a sinner. That goes perfectly together with the I do not condemn you either, right? And so you hear people You'll read it on Facebook. People saying, uh, well, Jesus responds with love to people. He said, I don't condemn you either. And that's, the, that's, that's what I take as well. That's the same tack that I take with, with all, of the, all of the things that are happening in our culture today. It's, you know, really, I know it's not right for men to pretend to be women. I know it's not right for, for men to marry men, and I know it's not right for people to get divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. And I know it's not right for them to live with their girlfriend, and I know, it's, I know I would never do those things, but how can I respond any differently than Jesus when he said, I do not condemn you either? My love requires that I love the way Jesus loved. But Jesus' love ended with, go and sin no more. And until our response can end with, go and sin no more, we have not loved with the love that Jesus had in his response. If our response must be, I do not condemn you either, continue in your sin. 
that is the opposite of what Jesus does. Do you see that? And so I don't want you guys to be intimidated by that verse being lobbed back as some sort of grenade at you. It will land right next to you. Everybody will think that you're about to be obliterated. Ignore it. Okay? Continue to love the people around you. That grenade cannot go off unless you're a Pharisee. Now, if you are a Pharisee, if you are the one who is going away and hiding your sin, you are the one who is ashamed and unwilling to go and repent, you are the one who is unwilling to let your own sin be known so that you can better share the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that you can better declare how you've been forgiven of much. So that you, like Paul, can say that you were a sinner, that you're among the foremost, that you are the foremost sinner. Then when they point back at you and they say, well, you have to be without sin to cast the first stone. You can look at that little grenade next to you and laugh. Because the reason that you're there, the reason that you're calling people to repentance is because you love them. Not because you're trying to use them and abuse them in order to get at somebody else. Night and day difference between those things, people. And, you, and you'll look down and, and Satan's, Satan's little voice will come yelling out of that grenade. Yeah, but you did sin. Yeah, but you are a sinner. You you know how sinful you are. You better wait. You better wait till you get yourself all cleaned up. You say, shut it, Satan. I have the shield of salvation. And all of your flaming darts are extinguished because I have been saved. I am cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am no longer a sinner. I'm not a Pharisee hating Jesus and hating God's law and trying to justify myself and my own righteousness by pointing out the sins of other people. I'm a sinner saved by grace calling my fellow brothers in the flesh to come and join me as brothers in the Spirit. Calling them to repent of their sins so that they too may be saved. And I know that that ticks you off, Satan. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And so we must learn to care for sinners like Jesus does. And that means calling them to repentance when they're unwilling to admit their sin, like the Pharisees. That him who's without sin cast the first stone. Points out their sin to them. And yet this woman who is repentant, standing there in shame in front of everybody, what does he have for her? He has mercy for her. Love, tenderness. He doesn't take advantage of her shame at that moment. He has compassion on her. And he tells her to go uncondemned and to stop. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. This is exactly what is wrong 
with Westboro Baptist Church. They have no love and no compassion. And so their pointing out of sin is what? For the sake of their own Pharisaical justification. And you will be called a Pharisee. You will be compared to Westboro Baptist the moment you open your mouth and point out sin and call people to repentance. Right? And you have got to have it straight in your mind. The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees so that you know which you are. Or that will be a debilitating attack. And you will go silent. But we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Sent into this world as strangers, fighting against principalities and powers. And you can't be an ambassador of Jesus Christ fighting that fight and be silent. Let's pray.